Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another edition of the Sports Virus Podcast. I'm Joe Castellano. Today's guest is a former NFL quarterback who's in his eighth season as an analyst with CBS Sports. Trent Green is joining us, and here's the conversation that I had with Trent on Wednesday. Well, Trent, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast with me. First of all, you were scheduled to cover the 49ers Seahawks game in Seattle, but unfortunately you weren't able to make it to the game. You were under the weather, which I was disappointed. I, I really wanted to see you on DVR watching the Niners game. Are you feeling better? I am. I'm feeling I'm feeling completely fine. It's uh, you know, it's one of those it's the times we're in, right? It's uh, you know, COVID protocols and you've got to you got to keep distance and everything, but yeah, I feel completely fine. I've uh, I felt fine for for over a week now, and uh, yeah, so I'm ju- I'm just thankful for for that, and uh, looking forward to get back on the road and, and calling games again. I know you prepared a lot for the uh, 49ers Seahawks game, and then you watched this, so I want to get your take on that game. It was it was kind of a sloppy game for both teams. The Seahawks really needed that game, and they end up pulling it out. Uh, so, what did you think about the way both teams played? You know, I was I was a little surprised by it. I thought uh, I thought the Forty ers would uh, would win that game. Um, you know, it, it just tells you you never know in in the NFL, right? It seems like every week uh, there's games uh, that really surprise you. I, I mean, it's you can take a handful of games every week, and you know this was one of them. I thought with the uh, the Forty ers the way they played in recent weeks, uh, the Seattle the way they had played in recent weeks, I just thought it was uh, two teams going in different directions. I know the Seahawks have had uh, historically have had some some success over the 49ers, but I thought uh, I thought this was gonna I thought it would go the other direction. So I was a little bit surprised by that, but uh, you know, as they say, that's why they play the game, and uh, you know, you have to you have to execute and get it done. Yeah, these games are unpredictable. I mean, you could be rolling along, and then all of a sudden things go awry. And you know, you've been on teams, Trent. I'm sure where you had those self-inflicted wounds, and that that seemed like that's what the 49ers had. I mean, that has to be frustrating after a game like that. Well, it is, and uh, and it, as a player, um, it's something you want to. You know, it does. It frustrates you, keeps you awake at night, and, and you remember. But you know, the one thing, uh, you know, Coach Vermeil. Uh, who I still keep in close contact with and is, is just a great person and great coach. But he always said one snap and clear. And it, it counts for games as well. It's, you know, it's got to move on to the next one, got to refocus. Let's correct what we can correct. Let's, um, you know, let's look at the tape and evaluate. You know, we'll spend the, you know, I know a lot of coaches out there talk about a 24-hour rule. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's look at the things we did wrong. Let's get it corrected uh, and then move on. And And that's really what has to, you know what has to happen for the 49ers and, and uh, you know, try and get back on track for, for what looked like, a, you know, a positive direction they were heading to turn this season around. Yeah, I mean, it really is a long season, even if things aren't going well. Uh, you know, you live in Kansas City and you have strong ties to the Chiefs, and that was a team that was really struggling there. Now, all of a sudden, they've won five in a row. They look like they're on a pretty good roll heading into their game against the Raiders this weekend. You know, I think I think the Chiefs and Chiefs fans, it's been one of those kind of up and down seasons. There were such high expectations coming into the season. Uh, you know, even Patrick Mahomes in the offseason had talked about, you know, oh, going undefeated, our goal is to go 20-0. and And, you know, that, that puts pretty lofty pressure uh, on anybody. Uh, and, you know, and some of the additions they had made, some of the changes they had made in the offseason and you know, revamping that offensive line, then it then it didn't go the way they had hoped. You know, they started off three and four. They were, 
you know, the bottom of the division. And, uh, and as you said, they've rattled off five straight now and, uh, they're, they're clumped together at eight and four with, uh, with Tennessee and Baltimore, but, uh, they're leading the division in the AFC West and, you know, big matchup, as you said, against the Raiders coming up. You've got Baltimore at Cleveland, and that's a rematch of a game a couple of weeks ago. And Cleveland coming off a bye, they didn't look so great against the Ravens the first time around, but that seems like a desperate team, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it is. It's a big game. I think it's a bigger game for the Browns, and I know uh, I know Baltimore's coming off of a loss. And, you know, they're kind of reeling a little bit if you look at the last few weeks, um, just trying to get back on track. They were They were – you know, kind of the team to beat in the AFC, and then now have hit a bump in the road. And uh, but the Browns really need this win, uh, as you said. Uh, they had the bye week; they're coming off the bye week, but it's kind of an unusual scheduling quirk that they're getting uh, getting the Ravens in back to back games. Uh, and and the Ravens won the first contest, and that's the game of people remember is the one that Lamar Jackson threw four interceptions, and yet uh, yet they were able to still find a way to win. And Cleveland relies so heavily on the running game and uh and they were only able, able to rush for 40 yards in that game so uh it was quite an unusual game a lot of mistakes in the game penalties drop passes for cleveland uh the turnovers for baltimore and uh yeah it, it wasn't the prettiest game to go back and watch again but uh but i think uh, i both i think both teams will will play much better uh than they did that first matchup Two exciting quarterbacks there in Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield. Uh, and I wanted to go back to the 49ers and their quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, because you know I think he's really handled the situation well because they go out and they, they draft Trey Lance. Uh, you know He's barely played. And Jimmy, you know, he just seems like he's the lame duck quarterback, but he was on a roll before that Seahawks game. He was playing really well. What do you think about the way he's handled it and the whole situation that he's in? You know, it is an unusual situation, and, and it's happened, you know, many times around the league uh, to different, different quarterbacks. And, you know, considering the contracts, you know, there's so many things that go into it uh, emotionally, and you try and take the emotion out of it as a player. Uh, you, you try and think, okay, they've drafted this guy that is going to be my replacement or for all intents and purposes is going to be my replacement. So how do I, you know, what's my, what's my next step? And uh, I think he's handled it very well. He's, he's said everything publicly that he needs to say properly. Uh, he's, he's got to go out and back it up because ultimately he's, you know, he's been in the position before where you're auditioning for another team and auditioning to get an opportunity to play somewhere. Uh, it's not a hundred percent sure, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I guess they could always keep him another year. Um, it seems like Trey Lance is the, is the future next season. But uh, but they could always wait a couple seasons if they don't think he he's ready to go. But I I don't see that happening. I I see Jimmy Garoppolo moving on and and uh, you know playing somewhere else next year. But I I think he's handled it about as well as you could possibly handle it, considering uh, you know considering what's going on. Yeah, how much of a challenge is it when you are kind of looking over your shoulder and you know you have no room for error uh, in those kind of situations? I mean, he seems to you know sort of thrive in that. I, I guess that would depend on the personality of the quarterback. It really does. Yeah, it really does depend on the personality of the quarterback. And, it's, you know, it's never a good situation. I think, I think the difference is there are two different styles of quarterback. You know, the way that uh, Trey Lance plays quarterback and the way that Jimmy Garoppolo plays quarterback, they're, they're different styles. So, uh, you know, when you look at uh, – I, I guess I'll use Kansas City just because I live in Kansas City. So, you know, with Alex Smith and they brought in, you know, Patrick Mahomes and Alex Smith was playing outstanding. Uh, but different style of quarterback than what Patrick Mahomes uh, was and is. 
Um, and obviously you can, you can track the Patrick Mahomes, or I mean, you can track Alex Smith to his time in San Francisco with Colin Kaepernick, two completely different styles of quarterback. So I think it's, I think you can find it easier as the player to not look over your shoulder. If you know, the guy, uh, the guy that's coming in is, is a different style. So you don't really feel the pressure to run it a certain way or to make like, you just do what you do because what the other guy does is quite a bit different, uh, style. So. I think maybe some of that has taken the pressure off of Jimmy, just knowing that, you know, it's it's not the same style, you know, to to another degree. You look at what's going on in Chicago, and I know that's not a, a positive thing, but with Andy Dalton, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, who they – gosh, who they drafted, Ohio State quarterback. Oh, uh, Field, Justin, Justin Field, so you look, yeah. You look at those, yeah, you look at those two guys, it's completely different styles of quarterback. So it's, uh, you know, it depends on the situation, as you said, the personality of the quarterback, but I also think the style of play the quarterback uses and what type of offense they're going to run. I'll tell you what makes a big difference is when George Kittle is in the lineup. I mean, he had a great game against yeah. the Seahawks, and you know that uh, to have that uh, dependable tight end, you had Tony Gonzalez, a you know, Hall of Famer, and, and that's such an important position in the game today. So, you know, for Jimmy G, uh, you know, I would think to a fault almost, he needs to look for Kittle. I mean, there was one that he just tried to force in there because he, he you know, when he threw an interception, he's saying, "Oh, I've got to get the ball to Kittle." Yeah, and and that's the delicate balance, as you mentioned. I played with Tony Gonzalez for six seasons, and there were times, uh, and we would have these conversations, Tony and I, during the week of practice, and and even on game days on the sideline. You know, hey, if there's two guys on me, that's okay. Just throw it up. I'll make sure that either I get it or nobody gets it. You know, and it, it, <laughs> you find yourself trusting it because he was so good. Uh, you know, obviously in the Hall of Fame and the numbers that he put up, but uh, you would you would find yourself where you try and force him to sit. When you have a guy like a George Kittle or, or in Kansas City with Travis Kelsey or that guy that you can you can rely on to, to throw a tough contested ball uh, that you know is going to compete for the ball and, and uh, it's either going to be a good play or, or be incomplete as opposed to some guys you throw it up and the ball's tipped around and next thing you know it's an interception. And so, you know, I've said many times over my career, both as a player and as a broadcaster, it's a trust thing between quarterbacks and receivers. And if you know there's a better chance something positive is going to happen as compared to negative, and, and what's the what's the risk you're going to have going into it when you throw a ball, a contested ball, which in the NFL there's a lot of contested balls because there's tight windows. Uh, if you have that trust built up, it, uh, it makes it that much better, uh, you know, and that much more confident when you're standing in the pocket knowing you're going to have to, to throw a ball through a tight window. A lot of quarterbacks are, are under-throwing receivers on purpose just to get pass interference calls. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. I wonder if they're going to change that rule at some point. Uh, you know, some quarterbacks are really taking advantage of it. I, you know, we were looking it up last week, noticing that Carson Wentz has had more than anybody as far as uh, drawing those pass interference calls. Yeah, that's become a new thing. You know, that's, you know I, it, it, gosh, it seems like forever ago, but it was uh, my last season playing was 2008. So a lot of these back shoulder throws, uh, you know, we were always taught you got to lead the receiver, let him run through the catch, those kinds of things. And yeah. now over the course of the last 10, 15 years, you know, the back shoulder throw, under throw the ball, let him come back, contest, and then that's where, you know, you get those pass interference. And so they've, they've made some adjustments to the rules. They've made different, different ways that they're looking at it and judging it. There have been a big emphasis on trying to balance it out with offensive pass interference compared to DPI. So it's trying to find that balance, but a lot of quarterbacks are taking advantage of it. And really, you know, it puts the, it puts the secondary player at a disadvantage. 
you know, for years it was, you got to get your head around and locate the ball. Well, if you get your head around and locate the ball, then you lose track of where the receiver is. And, and sometimes by the time you find the ball, the guy's already caught the ball. So then it became, okay, you're reading the, the defensive back's eyes. And when his hands go up, you put your hands up and you try and block it. Well, now with, as, as you talked about, Joe, that the number of underthrown passes, you see the hands, you see the eyes, and then you see the hands go up, but then they're coming back for the ball, and you're looking at it. There's no way for you to get out of the way. Right. Uh, so it's really had to change. Uh, I believe it's going to continue to change the technique and the way that uh, the way that defensive players are going to have to play the ball, just because the way the the rule is enforced. Let's go back to the early part of your playing career. Now, first of all, you were an eighth round draft pick of the Chargers. Uh, and, you know, when you're an eighth round pick, I don't know that you expect to have the career that you had, which was an outstanding career. And, you know, and I was looking at it with Elijah Mitchell, the 49ers running back, that there aren't that many guys that are drafted sixth round like he was or later that really, you know, start to thrive early in their career. I mean, usually there's a, a learning process. So how much did you have to preach patience? Oh, there was a lot of patience for me, and Elijah, Elijah is way ahead of me. <laughs> he, uh, uh, he's, he's having a tremendous season. Uh, I, was, uh, I was disappointed that I wasn't able to be there in person to watch him. Uh, I think he's a heck of a talent. Uh, I like his work ethic. I like his running style. There's so much I like about him, and, and that was one of the guys I requested to get in our production meeting, and, and I, of course, wasn't there to be in the production meeting because I was home, but uh, I, I was hoping to get an opportunity to talk to him because I do like his story, his work ethic, and, and what he's been able to do. You know, for me, it was much different as an eighth-round pick. I, you know, I went into San Diego, and uh, the starter was Stan Humphreys. They were coming off uh, making the playoffs. Uh, John Freeze was the injured starting quarterback. Uh, from the previous season, uh, he injured his knee in a preseason game, and that's what uh, the Chargers ended up bringing, uh, making a trade for Stan Humphreys. And so Freeze was coming back as the backup, returning from injury, and then and then I was the third quarterback. Now I only lasted a year in San Diego and was cut. Uh, spent a year out of out of the NFL. Actually went up to Canada, the CFL, the BC Lions, uh, and and being up there for a few weeks, and then got back in the NFL in Washington uh, in 95. So, uh, and then work my way. So uh, Elijah or Eli is a lot of his teammates call him, you know, is, is playing as a rookie. I, you know, for me, it took me five years to even get on the field. So it's a little bit different, a uh, little bit different comparison. And I, and I think he's done great things. And, and as you said, once I got an opportunity, uh, I took full advantage of it. It just took me a while to get there. Yeah, I mean, you had a uh, confidence-building season there in Washington in 98. How much was that a factor in just your whole career kind of you know, building towards what you would later do? Well, it was really unusual. So, you know, I was there the first two years in Washington. You know, Heath Shuler was the number one pick, and Gus Farratt was a seventh-round pick. And, and it was a difficult situation going into knowing that the two guys in front of me were younger than me. And, and North Turner, I remember having this conversation with him, he was – He's like, you know, you you just need to get in the league. You need to you need to stay on a roster and get in the league and get reps and learn the game and and don't worry about the guys being younger or ahead of you and those kinds of things. And so I I took that advice and and you know and, and tried to learn and and be as good a teammate as possible and just watch and learn and watch and learn whether it was coaches, players, whoever it may be. And then after two years, they traded Heath away to New Orleans and uh, and I thought I was going to get an opportunity to move up to be the backup. And then. And then they ultimately decided right before training camp to bring in Jeff Hostetler, who had had a you know won a Super Bowl with the Giants, had had a heck of a 
uh, career uh, with the Raiders and then uh, was kind of towards the end of his career and, and, you know, had a couple more years to play. And so they brought him in to be the veteran backup. And at that time I was, I was really disappointed uh, because I was hoping, you know, to get that opportunity to be the backup. And then, uh, and then with Jeff coming in, I decided, you know, I, I, I was mad for, for several days. And then I thought, I said, you know what, I've got this guy that's won a Super Bowl. I'm just going to pick his brain and lean on him as much as possible and just uh, try and learn as much as possible about everything, about the game of football, about reading defenses, about how he studied tape, because I really hadn't had anybody um, in that kind of mentor role. Even my, even my rookie year with, with Stan and John, I, w- I'm, I was good friends with them, but we didn't really, it was a different era in terms of like studying and preparing. So uh, I went into it with uh, with Jeff about how he prepared, how he managed, you know, everything from charity work to his family life to study and preparation and working out. I mean, I I just kind of grilled him. He probably got tired of me asking questions for a couple years, and then uh, ultimately uh, ultimately got an opportunity to play. Uh, there were some injuries that happened. Um, Gus Gus didn't play very well in the opener against the Giants in '98, and and. You know, Norv was like, you know what, just go in there. <laughs> and, uh, and fortunately, I went in and I played well and, and had the opportunity to start 14 games that season. How about your time with the Rams? Um, you guys won a Super Bowl, but, you know, it's bittersweet for you because you had the knee injury in 99. Kurt Warner ends up taking the team uh, to the Super Bowl title. Uh, that could have been you. I mean, how, how did you handle that mentally? I, I think a lot of people would have really struggled with the, the whole situation and, you know, feeling that it's unfair. But, hey, that's life, and, and you came out of it, it seems like, a, even a better person. You know, it, uh, it was tough. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, here I was. Uh, talking about the 98 season, you know, where I was 28 years old, I finally got a chance to play. I, I'd been year to year contracts. I'd been playing for league minimum, all those things. And then I finally got a chance to play, hit free agency, you know, uh, finally secured a, you know, a four year deal with some money to it and, and some financial security, those kinds of things. I was going back home. I had grown up in St. Louis. Uh, so here I was, the hometown kid coming back, trying to help turn around the hometown team. And, you know, put a lot into it, a lot of, lot of time and effort and energy. And, and uh, you know, and there were a lot of other pieces that came in. You know, we drafted Torrey Holt. Uh, we traded for Marshall Falk. Uh, Adam Timmerman was a starting guard for the Super Bowl champ uh, Green Bay Packers. And, uh, and we brought him in to, to kind of shore up that uh, the interior part of the offensive line. Um, you know, there were a lot of pieces that came into play. Isaac Bruce had missed a big portion of the previous season with some hamstring issues. He was coming back healthy. The development of Oz Akeem, uh, Ricky Prohl was a, uh, you know, was that solid slot third receiver, uh, possession receiver, and, and came up with some huge catches for us. If you remember the uh, the over the shoulder catch against Tampa Bay to win the NFC oh, yeah. Championship game <laughs> yeah. that year, so uh, it, w- it was a heck of a roster, and, and you know, it was tough mentally for me because I knew when I got hurt uh, that. Uh, you know, I just knew the talent we had. Now, I had no idea we were going to go on to win the Super Bowl and all those things. I just know that what we had done in the preseason up until my injury, we were going to have a really good team, and we were rolling along as an offense. And uh, the confidence was building. Everything was building. Uh, so that was the disappointing part, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to follow through with it into the regular season. Over the years, people have tried to, uh, you know, tried to kind of put a wedge between me and Kurt, like, oh, 
you know, Kurt did this, Kurt did that. And I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm happy for him because as you and I just talked about, it took me five years to even become a starter. And it took me to get cut in the NFL, get cut in the CFL, to be on the street, you know, to claw my way back in the league and, and work my way up to being a starter. And I know Kurt, you know, the story, his story, right? He, he went uh, undrafted and then, you know, uh, you know, working at a grocery store and then played in the arena league. And then, you know, the Rams signed him and sent him to NFL Europe. And then, he, you know, he, so it was like, I, I couldn't be mad at him. He was making the most of his opportunity. Like I had made the most of my opportunity in Washington when I got a chance to start. So uh, I was supportive of him. We've, we've remained friends. We, we still talk to this day. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that he was able to have the success that he did. I was just, from a personal standpoint, it was very, uh, you know, it was very emotional. Um, and, and it was something for me, it was a, it was a motivator for me that season to do everything I could from a recovery standpoint, from a rehab standpoint. I ultimately had to have three surgeries that first year uh, prior to training camp starting in 2000. And uh, so there was a lot of work um, both on a surgery table and in the rehab room. Uh, and then I ultimately had to have a fourth surgery after the 2000 season. So uh, it was a bad injury. I just didn't want my uh, – I guess my whole one of the motivators I had was I didn't want, you know, kind of the Wally Pip thing, right? When it comes to baseball, whatever, you know, Walt, the Wally Pip story, right? With right, Lou Gehrig, Lou Gehrig and, right? Right, and and it was like, okay, I don't want twenty years from now, ten years from now, whatever it may be. Hey, Kurt Warner went on, you know, and now he's ultimately in the Hall of Fame. Kurt Warner went on. Whatever happened to that guy that got hurt in the preseason that he replayed? I didn't want to just fade away and be a Wally Pip. So, um, believe me. Uh, there, there was a lot of that going through my head as I was going through the rehab, because as I said, I ultimately had, you know, four surgeries in a, in about a 15 month window, uh, trying to come back from, you know, from a pretty devastating knee injury. So, um, that was a big motivator for me. Fortunately for me, uh, you know, coach Vermeil came out of retirement and and joined the, the Kansas city chiefs and, he talked uh, Carl Peterson and Lamar Hunt into to making a trade for me and giving me another opportunity and um, getting a chance to play. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing how if things aren't handed to you and you face adversity, the motivating factors that are there that you were just talking about, I can, I can, I can just feel it listening to you talk about it. Uh, that's inspirational to a lot of people who are down because you know not everybody's going to have things go their way 100% of the time. So, I mean, that, that really does help out the young players who have to go through that. And, you know, you have two sons that have played quarterback at the college level. I, I would imagine that you've taught them a lot of lessons about dealing with adversity. You know, and I, and I think that's an important part of it. You know, you try and be, uh, you know, you know, one of my main examples, uh, or, or I guess my main factors in being a dad is trying to set a good example for my boys. And then I also have a, a daughter that's a, that's a sophomore in high school and just trying from a work ethic standpoint, uh, you know, the, uh, the way that you, you set a plan and you work for a plan and yes, there's going to be bumps in the road and your attitude, your approach, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, selfishly, number one, I was doing it as a, as a parent, as a father. And then, you know, secondary is, is as a teammate, right. You're, you're trying to set a good example as a teammate. And then also to, uh, you know, to the younger, younger fans out there that may be a fan of me, like when I was currently playing, uh, that, that we're trying to, you know, follow and watch and, and see the things that I, that I did and went through and, you know, hopefully set a good, good example for others. And, you know, all these different things, 
that I that I went through as a player and and as as all of us as as adults we go through as adults and you know you try and uh you know you try and set a good example and and I think that I think all those things have helped me. I think they helped me as a player. They helped me relate to players in the locker room because I was a late round pick. I was a big, bigger money. Well, not now, not now, not in financial terms of today's NFL, but at the time it was a bigger money free agent. You know, I was traded uh, later in my career, you know, so I can relate to a lot of different guys um, in a locker room. And that always helped me as a player. And now I've found that that, uh, you know, it's helped me as a broadcaster also because, you know, I can put myself in the position of a of a number of different players and what they're going through and how they're handling things. Seems like it was uh, such a seamless, natural transition for you to go from the field to the broadcasting booth. Uh, tell us about the early days of it. I know you did some work with Fox, and then you were on the radio, and every once in a while we still hear you on radio. And, of course, that's different than television. So uh, how much have you learned through the years about the broadcasting field? You know, I've, I've learned quite a bit. I, I didn't know. I went into it kind of cold turkey. I didn't know much about it. Uh, you know, later in my career, I started getting some opportunities. First, uh, well, I should, I should start it off first early in my career when, uh, when I finally uh, became a starter with Washington. Uh, George Michael of the uh, George Michael Sports Machine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you remember, if you remember him. So yeah. he was, uh, you know, he was the local sports guy in, in the D.C. area. And so he always did this Monday quarterback show with the starting quarterback. And so when I became the starting quarterback, you know, I started working with him. And, and I remember him telling me, he's like, you know what, you got a good knack for this for this TV <laughs> thing. And you know, if you ever if you ever think about getting into it, you should you know you should look into it. And then even when I moved on, you know, to St. Louis and to Kansas City, you know, he would do a Super Bowl preview show from wherever the the Super Bowl city was. Uh, and if I happened to be in town, he would call me up and say, hey, you want to pop on the show for, you know, 30 minutes or so and just kind of do a segment with me. And so I had always stayed in contact uh, with him. And then later in my career, I got an opportunity during uh, during a couple of bye weeks uh, late in my career with uh, with CBS. They brought me in for the NFL today and I was you know kind of that guest player on set. Uh, and, uh, and it was a great opportunity. And, and then the following year let's see i did an nfl draft i did like a round table for espn for the nfl draft and then for uh, even further towards the end of my career uh nfl network was uh was starting to put uh, current players in uh, playoff positions so guys that uh, that were already out of the already out of the season or, or their season had ended prior to the playoffs they were they were calling up guys and said hey you, you know let how about being a reporter at such and such playoff game? You can do a pregame and a postgame and maybe interview some players and that kind of thing. So I gave that a whirl. I did a couple of playoff games for the NFL Network. And so when it t- came time to end, uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, you know, I had never done a game on radio. Uh, I had done some studio work, as I said, with uh, NFL Today. And, and um, you kind of saw what that was about. I didn't know much about doing games. So I really was kind of an open book. I didn't hire an agent or anybody. I just started calling all these all these different uh, producers and TV people and radio people that I had met over the years, I kept their business cards and, uh, and just started <laughs> cold calling people and said, you know, what do you think? So as you, as you mentioned, my first year I did, uh, I did seven games for Fox. Uh, I did uh, studio work for NFL network. And then my second year, instead of doing games for Fox, uh, the NFL started doing uh, consistent Thursday night football so I did one more year at NFL Network uh, with Total Access. And then uh, on Thursday nights, I think there were somewhere between five and seven Thursday night games that first year. 
So for Westwood One Sports, I started doing that. Uh, and then my third year, um, I got tired of the commute, <laughs> going from Kansas <laughs> City back and forth to L.A. to do Total Access. So then I just stopped doing Total Access. Uh, and, and it also gave me more ability. My, my kids were at an age I wanted to be home more. Uh, so I did, uh, I did Thursday night radio for three more years. Uh, so four years total doing uh, Westwood one Thursday night radio. And, and every year they added more and more games to where by my last season, I think there were 15 Thursday night games that we did. And then, uh, and then that's when CBS came calling Dan, Dan Deardorff had, uh, had retired from CBS and, uh, they reached out and, you know, my four years working on radio was with Ian Eagle and, and Ian Eagle is, is obviously an incredible, incredible announcer and has, has continued to grow in ways as an announcer, both uh, radio, TV, NBA, NFL, college basketball. So um, it kind of opened the door for me to get into CBS. And, and now uh, now here I am in my eighth season. I uh, had six years with Greg Gumbel, and now I'm on my second year with uh, partnered up with Kevin Harlan. Yeah, time flies. And those are two very different announcers. I mean, uh, when you first stepped into the booth with Greg Gumbel, I'm curious, uh, you know, what you thought as far as, you know, trying to develop the chemistry because he just seems like he's so easy to work with in that way where, you know, he just uh, has an analyst uh, working with him in such a uh, uh, concert uh, where right. it's, you know, you, you don't have to worry about the timing of it. Uh, and then moving over with Kevin Harlan, who, who certainly is a very excitable announcer. I mean, this guy has so much enthusiasm. Well, I think, you know, th- those are those are very valid and great points uh because coming from radio with ian um you know i hadn't done a lot of tv uh i did those few games with fox and so the rhythm of it so my first thing to do uh obviously i knew greg had talked to greg many times in production meetings as a player um knew him pretty well in terms of announcers just because his partner at the time uh when i was playing was was uh dan deardorff and dan deardorff being a, a longtime St. Louis football cardinal uh, and living in St. Louis, I would always stick around and talk with those guys more than I would other production crews because Dan and I would get going on all the St. <laughs> Louis stuff. And so, of course, I got to know Greg more just because I was hanging out in there more. And, uh, you know, Greg's a legend. He's, he's, he's done everything. He's done Olympics. He's done Super Bowls. He's done World Series. You know, you, you name it. He's... Uh, you know, he, he's phenomenal. And, uh, and he, and as you said, he's very easy. He's, you know, his, his presentation and the way that, uh, that he does a game, um, you know, makes it very comforting and, and calming as the analyst because, uh, he is, uh, you know, he's setting you up to, to, uh, you know, to, to talk about what it is you're seeing as an analyst and, and how it is you want to get done. And so, you know, I really enjoyed my, uh, my six years with him and, and have nothing but, but great things to say about him. And then, and then to shift gears, I had known Kevin for a long time uh, because Ke- uh, Kevin lives in Kansas city. So when Kevin had done the games, uh, the production meetings for games, uh, when he would come in, he and I would get, you know, would talk a lot about Kansas city. So I got to know Kevin quite a bit. And then when Greg and I, uh, during that time, I would also uh, still do some, some playoff games for Westwood one. And many of those playoff games were done with Kevin Harlan. And so Kevin and I had worked some radio games together. So I knew the excitement level and the energy and kind of his style compared to what Greg's was. And so I already had a little bit of a head start when we, uh, when we jumped in the booth together, you know, a year ago. And, uh, and it's, been a, it's been a great transition because I already had a heads up on how he does things and, and how he 
you know, how he presents the game. As you said, there's two different styles, but I feel like I've been able to, to fit into both styles really well. And, you know, the, the play-by-play guy is the guy that really sets the tone, right? And, and just how the, how the game is going to go, how the production is going to go, how the, um, I guess, how the presentation to the fans how it's going to be done, and uh, and Greg and, and Kevin both have unique styles, and and I've uh, I've been able to adapt to both, and I, and they're both in my book they're both Hall of Famers, so it's uh, it's been a blessing for me to have that opportunity, and and you know right now continuing to work with Kevin. Yeah, I mean you guys uh, together uh, with both announcers, you guys have made for uh, two great teams. I have to say this, Trent, uh, since we worked together for six years, uh, you know, me being a stats guy for Greg Gumbel and CBS, uh, I was always impressed with how prepared you were, uh, you know, especially with the stats, because that's the area that I look at. But uh, preparation uh, was just off the charts. And I, and I guess that comes from being an NFL quarterback. But you were right there right away with it. Uh, did you know right away that that was going to be super important as a broadcaster? You know, one of the things, so now, now guys that are currently in the NFL, they can do, they can do what's called an NFL boot camp. Uh, so every yeah. off season they have, uh, they have a boot camp for guys that want to either be in front of the camera, behind the camera, if you want to do radio, if you want to do TV, it's, it's basically you just go for several days and you have different announcers come in and, and you basically get to practice and try and, Hey, do I want to do studio? Do I want to do games that, you know, Whereas, like I said, I didn't have any of that. <laughs> so it was kind of like <laughs> cold turkey. It was just, you know, so for me, what I did is I, I called up uh, Coach Vermeil. Uh, you know, during his, uh, in his stint between the Eagles and Rams, he, he spent 15 years doing college football. Right. And, uh, and so I said, okay, how do I, how do I prepare for a game? What do I do to get ready for a game? And so we had a lot of conversations about that, about how to take notes, what to do, um, you know, how to prepare. And it, it, it all sounded very similar to what I was doing as a quarterback. And so my, my job as a quarterback was to be over-prepared, right? To know what I was doing beyond a reasonable doubt and to know what everybody else in my huddle was going to be doing beyond a reasonable doubt and to, be, and to, do, uh, to, to know what the defense is going to do. And the times that the defense didn't do what they were supposed to do, I would generally go up to them and I'd be like, hey, what were you doing there? You're not supposed to be there in that defense. And and they would look at me and they'd start laughing at me and they're like, well, no, I just kind of, I just kind of read the formation. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, that's a mistake. You know? So, uh, so as a, as an announcer, I kind of, I kind of took that same, I just, I never wanted to go into a game, not prepared. And, you know, a lot of, uh, and, and you know this because you're preparing stats, you know, all week long to get ready for the game. You get done with a game, and a lot of times you're using what 20, 30, maybe 40% of all the stuff that you've prepared yeah, all week. Yeah. But you're doing it because you don't want to be caught off guard, right? right? If it's a if it's a close game, the game takes care of itself. If it's a blowout one way or a blowout the other way, then you've got to be prepared with all these different stats and stories and numbers and everything else and that's when you kind of empty the bag on on all the <laughs> stuff that you've prepared during the week. Um the goal every week is to have a great game and not to use anything, but you also don't want to get into the middle of the third quarter and it's a 24 point deficit. And now you're like, okay, we've got a quarter and a half. We've got to like find some stuff to talk about. And so I think that's why I've always taken it upon myself in terms of preparation, both uh, I study film during the week. Uh, I read whatever notes I can get my hands on from both teams 
Uh, I'm constantly on the computer, sitting at my desk, like scrolling through, <laughs> trying to find find different things that I can uh, that I can read or, or get information about, or, or little tad uh, little, little tidbits and stats that I can pick up. Um, you know, CBS is great about sending us a bunch of information, uh, and uh, and so yeah, it's it's just um, for me. You know, I enjoy doing it. I like doing it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's like being a player. You're just preparing in a different way as, as opposed to preparing, you know, one team and one side of the ball, as I did as a quarterback. Now I'm preparing both teams, both sides of the ball, both front offices, both coaching staffs, uh, both statistics. I mean, so it's actually, uh, I'm doing more than what I did as a player, uh, but I am enjoying it. Yeah, and it definitely comes through on the broadcast. All right, before we finish up, I just wanted to ask you about these cleats. Uh, Melanie Collins did a report about the Trent Green custom cleats supporting Phoenix family. Tell us about that. You know, there is, uh, uh, there's a reading program that my wife Julie and I started. Uh, gosh, it's been almost 10 years now. So Phoenix family is an organization that uh, – that they put these communities, for, for lack of a better description, they, they basically put these community centers within low-income housing. So uh, if it's a giant, you know, apartment complex or something like that, they'll, ha- they'll have a community center where, where kids can go after school, where they can go on the weekends, where they have different activities and crafts and different things that they can do. Um, and so we had started uh, years ago working with a number of different organizations and scholarships and all those kinds of things. And my wife's background is in education. She and I met at Indiana university and she was an education major. And um, so that's always been an important aspect for her and for us. And so we wanted to find a way, you know, when we, when we were in the Kansas city community and we see all these things about what's going on in the inner cities and, you know, so I, I actually at the time the, the mayor was uh, was Sly James, and I and I had a couple of conversations with him, and I said, you know, why is it that there's, you know, the crime rates, the drug rates, the arrest rates, the uh, incarceration rates, all those things, and he's, you know, and it should have been obvious, but he's like, it all comes back to education and, and getting to kids early on because a lot of these kids are so deficient in reading and in their education that by the time they get to high school you know, they're so far behind that they drop out and they, they try and find other ways to make money. And, you know, generally that's crime or drugs or something along those lines. So uh, we decided uh, after having multiple conversations with him and, and trying to find an organization that we could tie together with uh, Phoenix family was that, was that group because they were, they were servicing um, the, the people that we were trying to reach the, the communities that we were trying to reach. And, um, these community centers were already set up. They just didn't have any reading labs and they were trying to get them started and they needed a kickstart. And so, uh, we helped fund, uh, fund these five, you know, it started off as one and two, and we gradually built up to five over the years. And, uh, so you had to buy computer programs and computers for these reading labs. And then once those are set up, then, then those community centers would reach out and try and get, uh, volunteers that wanted to be reading partners with the kids. So the kids after school, could come in and, and it's not every day, but it's a couple days a week and you have to rotate it because of the number of kids that are in, um, that are using the, the reading labs. And so, uh, you know, several times a week, volunteers are coming in, you get partnered with a kid and, and you build that relationship and you see them learn. And we've had uh, tremendous strides, uh, with kids that, you know, come in and they're four or five reading levels below what they should be. 
And then all of a sudden, within several months, they've already jumped a couple of, of grade levels. Um, just because, wow. you know, we provide them an opportunity to read and evaluate and enunciate and, and uh, you know, have these volunteers that are working with them. And, you know, and another part of the, another aspect of it is getting books donated. So we get books donated. So these reading labs have books where the kids can check out the books and take them to their house. Cause a lot of times they don't even have books in their house or in their apartments or um, duplexes or wherever it is they're living. So uh, it's just, it's been a great program. We've, we've had a lot of success. We've had uh, several hundred kids per year that are in it. So we're, we're now, you know, in the thousands in terms of kids that we've been able to reach out to. Uh, probably one of my favorite stories is someone that, uh, a young man that's in college now, he came up to me two years ago and he said, uh, he goes, Hey, you don't know me. He goes, we met, you know, seven years ago or something like that. And, and I was just a kid and, and you had opened up one of the reading labs and you came up to the reading lab and we, you know, you and I were playing cats out in front one day and, and, <laughs> You know, and he, he goes, I just want you to know that if it wasn't for you in that reading lab, I would have never made it into college. And, you know, now I'm in college and I, you know, I can see a future. And, and it just, wow. just that one person, um, you know, it, 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 it meant a lot. And, and I know there's, you know, there's many other kids out there also. But this, this kid made the effort to find me, track me down. He's, I don't know where, where how he just randomly, I was somewhere and he, he just came up and goes, hey, you know. Um, I just want to tell you this story and it just, you know, it just meant the world that, uh, you know, to have that type of impact because he's like, you know, I was so far behind because I was bored in school because I didn't, I couldn't read and I wasn't, you know, up to grade level and, and, you know, now I'm in college and I see a future and, you know, it's a, so yeah, that's, that's why we do it. And, um, yeah, those shoes are a part of it and, uh, hopefully it can, it can raise some awareness and raise some money for Phoenix family. Yeah. And that's a really heartwarming story, Trent. That's awesome. And, uh, so satisfying. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Uh, it was a privilege to work with you. Hope that we get to do it again and uh, enjoy the rest of the season. It's going to be a, a wild finish to the NFL season. Yeah, you too, Joe. I, I enjoyed our six years together, and, and you never know. You know, this business is crazy. We, uh, we hopefully will get an opportunity to work together again, and uh, I am looking forward to the end of the season, um, not because it'll be over with, but just because of the exciting games we're going to have uh, over the course of the next month plus and uh you know it's 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 getting fired up at that time of year where, where people are making moves and you get the hot teams you know you get the teams that uh, you think like okay are they on the verge and the next thing you know you know they're uh they're in the championship game or making their way into the super bowl and then you know the teams that you you expect to be there sometimes they uh, they surprise you as well so it's a fun time of year and uh, always great catching up with you absolutely thanks trent and uh, happy holidays to you and your family yep you too thanks joe That's former Pro Bowl quarterback and current CBS Sports analyst Trent Green. Join us again next week. We're going to talk to a sports doctor here on the Sports Virus Podcast. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening on the SportsVirus.com and the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.